So with our Bibles open to Matthew chapters 4 and 5, we come today to begin uh, the section that is entitled the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, You'll remember from last week, if you were here, that the kingdom of heaven has dawned with the appearance, with the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we all must turn to the light, and we must follow the light. You remember from last week, we said that if you would imagine that there is a gate entering into the kingdom, there are three things we must do to enter that kingdom. We must repent, turning from our love of sin in order to love God. We must leave. We must leave all the things that are most cherished in our lives, those things that we depend on uh, in our lives so that we can follow Christ who alone is Lord. And to to Him, we must give our highest allegiance and our faithful obedience. That is the message, really, of Matthew chapter 4. And it leads us now to Matthew chapter 5 through 7. A sermon of our Lord that's going to clarify for us what it means to follow Christ. As, as the kingdom of heaven dawns, King Jesus, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives to us, puts into place, a new heavenly ethic. He gives to us a law by which we are to live. And believe it or not, we're going to take the next 20 messages to expound the Sermon on the Mount. We want to do this carefully. We want to do this thoroughly. This, this sermon was first called the Sermon on the Mount by the African theologian Augustine back around 400 A.D. We are indebted to St. Augustine for much theology. He had a rich understanding of the Scriptures, particularly of the doctrine of, of grace. Uh, but this wasn't necessarily one of his most brilliant moments to call this the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Even I could have figured out that title uh, because it is a sermon and it was given on a mountain. And so it is the Sermon on the Mount. It is, it is, for that title has stuck. That title has stayed with us to this very day. He, Jesus goes up on a mountain, he sits down and he gathers his disciples to him. Then he opens his mouth and he begins to teach. And I'm here to tell you this afternoon that whether you are a senior citizen nearing the end of your journey or a millennial who's still trying to find yourself and find your way in this crazy world or someone in between, Matthew chapters 5 through 7 present to us the law of King Jesus. It presents to us an ethic that surpasses all other ethics, all other laws. And it's a word to us that if we would have Jesus as our Savior, we must also have Him as our King. If we would have Him as our Savior, we must also have Him as our Master and as our Lord. The Sermon on the Mount is the law of the Kingdom. 
And as we move through it over these coming several months, there are, there are two things I think we need to keep in mind. First of all, a commitment to obey. Our, our king is speaking here in Matthew chapters 5 through 7 with an authority that is vested in the fact that he is the high king over the kingdom of God. We said last week that the end of chapter 4, verses 23 through 24, where Jesus is healing all kinds of sick people and raising up epileptics and paralytics and He's delivering people of demons. We, we said that that was Jesus exercising His authority over disease and over nature and, and over demons and, and over uh, sickness. But when we get to chapters 5 through 7, this is Jesus exercising His authority over us. This is Jesus saying, this is how you are to live. And He emphasizes it. This is a sermon filled with authority. So if you look in chapter 5 and say verse 21, notice notice what Jesus does. Verse 21 of chapter 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But... I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Do you see what Jesus is doing there? And he does this repeatedly throughout the sermon. He says, you have heard that it was said. Moses said this. The Old Testament law said this. But I say to you. Folks, if I were to stand up here and do something like that, you should throw me out of my ear. Get rid of me quick. But Jesus stands up and and He speaks with all authority. He says, yes, Moses said this, but now I have come and I am the High King. I am the Lord and the Master in the Kingdom, King of the Kingdom of Heaven. And I am saying to you, do these things. So as we come to this text, we should come with a spirit of humility. We should come with a spirit of obedience. We should come saying, really, as Samuel said in days of old, speak, Lord, for your servant hears. Speak, O King, for your servant hears. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, humanly speaking, we could understand and interpret the Sermon on the Mount in a thousand different ways, But Jesus knows only one possibility, simple surrender and obedience. Not interpreting it or applying it, but doing and obeying it. There is no other posture, there's there's no other response that is fitting for those of us who claim to be followers of King Jesus. No negotiating, no excuses, no rationalizing, no compromising, no minimizing. We are to come with a spirit of obedience before the King. So we come with that first of all, but then secondly, not only should we have a spirit of obedience, a commitment to obey, but we must also have a recognition that we can't obey. And here's the mystery. 
We are called to obey. We are called to follow and keep this ethic, this law of Christ. But we must do so with the understanding that we are too weak and we are too sinful and we are too impoverished to obey it. We must come realizing that one of the purposes of the law of Christ and one of the purposes of the law of God Get this, one of the purposes of the law of Christ is not to show us how good we are, but to show us how bad we are. The purpose of the law of God is to convict us of sin. It's the law of God, the law of Christ is like a diagnostic test for the soul. Medical tests are done Not to show us really that we're healthy, but to show us if we're sick. It's strange, isn't it, that if some tests are done and the tests come back positive, they come back positive, we know that things are bad. If they come back negative, we all breathe a sigh of relief. That doesn't make any sense. It does make sense, though, if you realize that the question those tests are asking is not, are all your bones unbroken? Those tests are asking the questions, are any of your bones broken? The MRI is being done not to ask the question, are you healthy? The MRI is being done to ask the question, are you not healthy? Is there something wrong? And if the answer is yes, it tests positive. It's it's answering the question, is something wrong? The law of God is a diagnostic test for our souls. The law of God comes to us. And it doesn't, it doesn't come to us to, to show us how healthy we are, to show us how good we are. It comes to us to answer the question, is there something wrong with me? And the more that you study the law of God, the more you realize that there is. That there is. The law of God, the law of Christ has a way of revealing our true con- condition. The results are never good. God's law doesn't establish and strengthen our self-righteousness and our feeling of good. God's law has a way of slaying our self-righteousness and convicting us. Philip Yancey writes, thunderously, inarguably, the Sermon on the Mount proves that before God we all stand on level ground Murderers and temper throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters, we are all desperate. And that is in fact the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from the absolute ideal, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. Yes, this is true. We need a safety net of absolute grace. We we need the grace of God. We need the mercy of God. We need need Jesus not just to be our King. We need Him to be our Savior. We need Jesus not just to be our King. We need Him to be our righteousness. 
We need Him to be the sacrifice covering our sin. We need Him to to bring about our justification and our forgiveness and our acceptance with God. Because every time we read the Sermon on the Mount, we come away knowing we are not well. We come away knowing that we are desperately sinful. We come away knowing that we need a Savior. And so as we come to this text, Here's the, here's the irony. Here's the tension. Here's the paradox. In coming to this text, we who love Jesus are being called to a life of obedience to the highest moral, ethic, and standard that has ever been revealed. But at the same time, we are being called to a place of humility that says, Oh Lord, help us because we can't do this. And oh Lord, forgive us for our sins are many and our guilt is great. O oh Lord, come and save us. Pardon us of our sin and give us power to be changed. So, as we come to chapter 5, let us come with those two commitments in our hearts and let us hear from our King, the Lord Jesus Christ. As you know, Chapter 5 begins with a series of blesseds. These, you may well know, are called the Beatitudes. They are statements of blessedness. Blessed means happy, full, contented, deeply, lastingly, happily enriched by God. Blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, happy, happy. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed, verse 4, are those who mourn. Blessed, verse 5, are the meek. Let me share with you in these next few minutes what these first three Beatitudes actually say to us. I'll summarize it like this. These first three Beatitudes tell us this. The humble are happy because their honor is great. The humble are happy because their honor is great. The mournful are happy because their comfort is sure. And the meek are happy because their inheritance is vast. The the humble are happy because their honor is great. Notice this in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's not talking about material poverty. It's not talking about being poor in money. It's being, talking about being poor in spirit. It's talking about spiritual poverty. It's, it's talking about a recognition that in myself, in my flesh, in my will, in my strength, I am spiritually poor. I am, in fact, The word that Jesus uses actually speaks of being a beggar. I am a spiritual beggar. When it comes to approaching God and offering God anything of any value, in myself I have nothing to give Him. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to Thy cross I cling. Naked come to Thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to thy fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. 
That is being poor in spirit. You ever felt that? You ever felt that? Your own spirit, your own heart, as you've assessed yourself in the presence of a God who is all holy and all pure and all righteous, and then you look in the mirror and you see yourself. You ever felt that poverty of spirit? Just say, I got nothing. I got nothing. I got no goodness in myself. I've got no power in myself. I've got nothing that I can claim of any value before God. I am a beggar before Him. Remember the, the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 where Jesus talks about, first of all, a Pharisee who was really full of himself. And he, he went, we could say he went to church. He went to the temple and, and he goes into the temple and he kind of saunters up to the, to the altar and he says, oh Lord, I, I thank you. I'm not like other men and you know, I've not done this and done that. I'm a good man. The very opposite of being poor in spirit. But then there's this cheating, thieving, conniving tax collector. This guy that everybody hated who was a Jewish man who worked for the Roman government and in the process of collecting Roman taxes would add on all kinds of surtaxes and all the rest so so that he could line his own pockets. And so he was a traitor and he was a thief and he was a scoundrel and he knew it. Jesus says that as he got near to the temple, he stood afar off. And he couldn't even lift his eyes to heaven. And he smote his breast. And he said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he said. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. God, I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Happy are those who are beggars. Happy are those who know they have nothing to offer to God. How do you, how do they, how does it mean this? How can they be happy? Well, they they are happy because even though now they are humble before God, the day is going to come when they are honored by God. What does it say? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is what? The kingdom of heaven. So those of us who see ourselves poor, who walk through life humble, who don't pat ourselves on the back in any way, who take no credit to ourselves, who do not think we're hot stuff. Those of us who walk humbly with God will one day be honored by God. We will be put on thrones with God. The kingdom will be ours. And Jesus says, that ought to make you happy. That ought to carry you. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The humble are happy because their honor is great. Second, the mournful are happy because their comfort is sure. The mournful are happy because their comfort is is sure. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. 
Blessed means what? Happy. Are those who do what? Mourn. Ponder that one. Happy are the sad. That's what he says. Happy are the sad. Happy are those who mourn. He's not talking here about general mourning over the losses of life, although certainly there are promises in Scripture for comfort for those of us who mourn the, the, the griefs of life. But there's a particular kind of mourning, of weeping, of sadness that Jesus has in mind here. It's a sadness that flows out of the first beatitude. We mourn because we're poor in spirit. That is to say, we mourn because we know we have nothing to offer. We mourn because we know we are sinners. We mourn because we know we are guilty. This is a mourning over sin. And, and it's part of repentance. It's, you know, bless, the Lord loves and, and is gracious to the contrite of heart. To those who are broken hearted over their sin. Happy are those who mourn their sin. Brothers and sisters and friends, I think we must be honest to say that mourning over sin is, is very much a, a grace, very much a practice, very much an experience that is, that is far too little experienced. Nowadays, our attitudes towards sin are so flippant. Our attitudes toward our own sin, so careless. We just say, eh, yeah, no, big, no big deal. God calls us to mourn. God calls us to weep over our sin. God calls us to feel it deeply. Have you mourned? Do you mourn? Your sin. Your sin. Do you grieve it? I remember years ago reading about a man named Yehiel Denur. I read about him in one of Charles Colson's books as, as Mr. Colson was writing about the Nuremberg trials and Colson recounts it like this. He says, Christians of all people should never be surprised at the evil that infects every human being even the most ordinary of people. A dramatic illustration of this truth took place many years ago when Israeli agents captured Adolf Eichmann, one of the masterminds of the Nazi Holocaust, and brought him to Israel to stand trial for his crimes. Among the witnesses called to testify against Eichmann was a small, haggard man named Yehiel Denur. He had survived brutal torture in the death camp at Auschwitz. Denur entered the courtroom and he stared at the man who had presided over the slaughter of millions, including many of, of Denur's own friends. And as the eyes of the victim met those of the mass murderer, the courtroom fell silent. Then suddenly, Denur literally collapsed to the floor, sobbing violently. Was he overcome by hatred? by memories of the stark evil that Eichmann had committed? No. 
As Denur explained later in a riveting interview on 60 Minutes, what struck him, listen to this, what struck him was that Eichmann did not look like an evil monster at all. He looked like an ordinary person, just like anyone else. In that moment, Denur said, I realized that evil is endemic, it is common, it is prevalent in the human condition that any one of us could commit the same atrocities. I saw that I am capable to do this. I am exactly like He. And in a remarkable conclusion, uh, the interviewer Mike Wallace said simply this, Eichmann is in all of us. When Mr. Denur looked into that man's eyes, that man that many would say was an evil monster, he saw a reflection of himself. He realized that he was capable himself of the same evils. My friends, the true condition of every human soul, apart from the grace of God, the true condition of my soul, apart from the restraining power and grace of God, is that you and I will do whatever evil we think we can get away with. That's why a two-year-old, I had six of them at one time, every one of them. That's why a two-year-old looks over his shoulder in the direction of mommy and daddy when he or she is about to snatch some candy he's not supposed to have. That's why people used to, I don't know if they do it anymore. Uh, maybe phone apps do it for us now, I don't know. But people used to have radar detectors in their cars. Anybody ever had one? Uh-huh, uh-huh. What's, what's the concept be behind a radar detector? If you don't know what they are, um, they, they detect when there's a police radar up ahead monitoring speed. Yeah, now you're getting it. What's the concept there? I will do this if I can get away with it. And this, my friends, is the way we all are. We will do what we believe we can get away with. Mr. Denur, as he saw this man, Adolf Eichmann, had the sudden realization of the sinfulness of his own heart. You see, what ought to make us mourn is not just the sins we have done, but the sins we would do apart from the grace of God. That is what ought to humble us. That is what ought to break our hearts. Oh Lord, who can stand before you in this condition? I know me, folks. I remember me as a teenager. I remember 
how fast I was running away from God, even though I'd been raised in the gospel, raised in the things of Christ. I remember how much I didn't want to believe in God. I didn't want to follow God. I didn't want to obey God. I wanted sin. I wanted it now. I wanted it fast. I wanted it heavy. I wanted it all. I remember. And had God not restrained me and not held me back and not rescued me, then I would have chased it to my death. It's in moments when the reality of that hits that I mourn. I mourn. Oh Lord, how desperately wicked we are. You see, I don't like that. That sounds negative and pessimistic. I'm sorry. It's first of all what the Bible teaches, but it's also what we know to be true down deep inside. So there's no point in living in denial, especially when there's a promise. Happy are those who mourn. Why? Because they will be comforted. You see, if you refuse to be poor in spirit, refuse to mourn, you will never be comforted. But if you mourn, you will be comforted. And if this mourning is over my sin and my sinfulness, the sins that I have done, the sins that I would do apart from the grace of God, if the mourning is over sin, then what must the comforting be? I say it's two things. Forgiveness of sin... And the promise that one day I will sin no more. That's the comfort. The forgiveness of sin. No matter who you are, no matter how bad you are, no matter how much your heart aches and breaks over things you have done, if you confess your sins and believe that Jesus Christ died for those sins and was raised from the dead and is exalted to be a king to grant forgiveness to everyone who repents and believes. If you believe that, your sins are gone in His sight. You are forgiven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And it gets even better. Blessed are those who mourn because the day is coming when they will sin no more. The day is coming when we will see King Jesus. And John says, we shall be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. We will be glorified. We will be transformed. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye in the split second that Jesus appears. All of our, all of our remaining sin will fall off from us. will will disintegrate. will disappear. And, and there will never be another lustful thought. Never another proud thought. Never another angry thought. Never another selfish thought. Never another time when and I look over my shoulder to see who's watching. Never again. I will sin no more. And you won't either. And you won't either. Blessed. Blessed are those who mourn. The mournful are happy because their comfort is sure. Are you forgiven? Is that promise yours? Do you know it? Right here, right now, 
You don't even have to leave your seat. You don't have, you don't. Just right here, right now in your own heart before God say, Lord, I am so sorry. I am so guilty. I have nothing to offer you, but I know Jesus died for me. I believe in him. I receive him as my king and as my savior. Will you forgive me of all of my sins? And he says to you, yes, I will, my child. Yes, I will, my child. That's what you need to do. Repent, mourn, ask God's forgiveness. Believe that Christ paid it all for you. And then you walk out of here this afternoon a, a, a forgiven sinner. You walk out, you come in guilty, you come in mourning, you leave happy, you leave rejoicing, you leave forgiven. Happy are those who mourn. The mournful are happy because their comfort is sure. And let me close with this. The meek are happy because their inheritance is vast. The meek are happy because their inheritance is vast. Verse 5, blessed are the meek for they shall Inherit the earth. Meekness has a bad rap. It's misunderstood and therefore much maligned. Meekness is not timidity. It's not a nervous condition. Meekness is not a personality thing. You know, you just have people who are kind of mild temperamentally. Meekness is not a bland form of niceness. It is not spinelessness. The Bible says Moses was the meekest man on earth in his day. I defy anyone in this room to have more spine than he did. The Bible says that Paul was a meek man. I defy anyone here to have the courage that he had. And above all, the Bible says that Jesus was meek and mild. And there is no one who has ever been stronger, and dare I to say it, tougher than Jesus was. So what is meekness? Meekness is the strength and the self-control to endure under hardship and to endure under hostility from others without giving in to anger or retaliation. Meekness is the opposite, the opposite of a defensive, belligerent, accusing, reactionary person. Meekness doesn't feel any need to get even. It is able to take abuse. It is able to take uh, bad treatment. It is able to take um, wrongdoing from others without resorting to hostility or anger, or retaliation. Don't get me wrong. I need to qualify that. When I say it's able to take abuse, please understand. I'm not talking about physical abuse or sexual abuse. There are things that must be done to protect and to safeguard. This is, this is the mistreatment of others. This, this is when, when people just, just do us wrong. Jesus says, blessed are the meek. 
Blessed are those who don't have to fight back. Blessed are those who are able, they have the strength, they, they have the grace inwardly to not, not have to win the argument, not have to make things right. It's, it's, the, it's the great, why do, why do I not have to fight with you? Why, why do I not have to react and retaliate? Why do I not have to get mine or get what's coming to me or get mad or get angry? Why not? Well, Jesus says it's because in the end, the meek get everything. The meek inherit the earth. I don't have to fight you if you're taking something from me. I don't have to retaliate because the day's coming when everything is mine. The meek will inherit the earth, and I'm willing to wait. There's a day is going to come when Jesus says to those who are faithful to him, to those who love him, this all is yours. Behold, all things have been made new, and now they're yours. Oh, child of God here today, I know that many of us, I'm sure that many of us are facing people and problems that tempt us to anger, tempt us to retaliation, tempt us to bitterness, tempt us to fight back. Oh, may we have the grace to be strong inwardly, to be meek, to, be, to have that strength of character that says, I don't need to fight for it here because I'm going to get it there. And God is going to make all things right. This applies to our marriages, folks, your husbands and wives that are after each other. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek. Stop the fighting. Stop the fighting. Stop the arguing. Parents and children, blessed are the meek. Stop the fighting. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, whoever you are, stop the fighting. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, how are you doing on the diagnostic test? Blessed are the poor in spirit. How are you on the humility gauge? Blessed are the mournful. How are you in terms of actually grieving, mourning your sins? Blessed are the meek. How are you doing in those conflict moments. Has the law of Christ already revealed your guilt? Uh, if so, may it be that you will turn to Christ as your Savior. May it be that you remember that the cross of Christ is your deliverance, that the blood of Christ washes you clean. May it be that as we go through this sermon, we will time and again not only see how we are to live, but also see that God's grace and God's forgiveness covers all of the mess and all of the mess of our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, It's clear from your word here, Lord, that these are foundational things. This, these are things that kingdom living need to be built on. We need to be poor in spirit. We need to mourn our sins. Trusting 
in your amazing grace. And we need to be meek, gentle in spirit and mind and in every way, Lord, responding to evil with grace, even as Jesus did to his dying day. Oh, Lord, teach us these things in our hearts, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Friends, this is God's word. Oh, oh, I didn't see you there, Alex. Come on up, brother.